1: Welcome to New Books and Communication Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Bierma. The television comedies of the 1960s set in the rural American South epitomize American innocence. But in their original historical, social, and commercial context, their portrayals of Southern life and their omissions of political events and people of color raise questions about how these television programs have been embraced, then and now. How were these shows a response to the Red Scare of the 1950s? Why did they become hits? What insights can they give us to contemporary questions about media portrayals of rural America? Sarah Eskridge is the author of the new book, Rube Tube, CBS, and Rural Comedy in the Sixties. I asked Eskridge about conflicts and continuities between Manhattan and Mayberry, Beverly Hills, and Trump Country. Joining me now is Sarah Eskridge, author of Rube Tube, CBS, and Rural Comedy in the Sixties. Sarah, welcome. Thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me, Nathan.
1: Tell us about your interest in this topic. What drew you to research these archives and look at this programming and tell this story?
0: Well, I started looking into this because I, as a Southerner, I am fascinated by Southern stereotypes and what people think of Southerners, um, those who live outside of the Southern United States. And so I wanted to learn more about where these uh, stereotypes originated and how they have been propagated through our media. And in the process of looking at that, I found that there was so much more to it than that and that those stereotypes um, have positive connotations. They have negative connotations and that they are kind of utilized by CBS in the 1950s and 60s in order to sort of change their identity um, as a brand, um, especially in the wake of the Red Scare.
1: You mentioned in your preface many of the research collections and libraries that you availed yourself of in your research. Um, Just to name one, the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. I don't know if people are aware of just what kind of records there are available when it comes to television history. Uh, What did you find there and what did it lend to, uh, to your book?
0: Oh, gosh, I couldn't have written the book without that archive, and it's available online. Um, I believe they've changed the name of the website, but they have online um, all of these interviews that they've done over the past 20 years with various, uh, not only actors, but directors, producers, people who work behind the scenes. Um, writers, um, pretty much anyone who has anything to do with the television industry um, and the movie industry to some extent, but the television industry, they've covered very extensively. And uh, those interviews were just remarkable. And with a lot of those people, they've passed away. And so these are some of the only interviews that we have of them talking about the subject.
1: So at the outset of your book, you mentioned that previous research has pointed to the conventional wisdom that what led to the rise of Southern-related programming, Southern-themed programming in the 60s, was the FCC license changes or or licensing uh, resuming in 1952. Before that, there weren't licensed stations to carry network programming in many Southern areas. And when that changed, the Southern programming uh, came with it. Uh, And you say that that's too simplistic. Why is that?
0: Well, there are a lot of reasons why that happens. Um, For one, if you just look at the number of televisions that are in the South, um, yes, they are a significant part of the television viewing public, but they are also by far the smallest market uh, out of all the areas of the United States. Um, And so there are many. And also, if you look at who ultimately watches rural comedy, those areas are not predominantly in the south. some of the biggest markets for rural comedy and for that kind of television are actually found in some of the highest um, some of the highest populated areas in the country.
1: And that's why that question about the imagery of southern of Southerners and uh, these stereotypes is so fascinating, because in so many uh, cases, you're talking about how Northerners are literally viewing Southerners. So I'll definitely want to ask you about that. But first, you note that CBS, which led this charge in the 60s, before then, was known for some rather remarkable for the time, um, ethnic, racial... Uh, diversity in its programming. Um, What had it achieved in terms of diversity in the 40s and 50s um, that would seem remarkable uh, even just 10, 20 years later?
0: Well, if you think about the way that television started, it's only available in the most urban areas, specifically New York. And if you think about New York demographically, it's one of the most diverse areas of the country, particularly in the mid 20th century. And so you had a lot of people there who are still considered who are first generation immigrants, um, a lot of racial diversity. And so in order to get people to buy this incredibly expensive piece of furniture, which is a television, which would have cost approximately 10 to 15 percent of the average American income, in 1950, um, you needed to appeal to those people and have to give them something worth watching. And so there's a lot of programming that deals with um, immigrant families, that deals with people of color, and they're usually family sitcom type programs. Um, So this is something that everybody can watch together as a family. You can see yourself reflected. Um, You see um, people of Jewish descent. You see uh, Italian-Americans who were still definitely considered a a very specific class of immigrants at that point. You see African-Americans, albeit not necessarily portrayed in the most racially sensitive of ways but you do have multiple sitcoms dealing with that and so there are there is representation um, on television in the early 1950s it's just that we don't hear about it in the 21st century.
1: And one of the things that changes, as you mentioned, the Red Scare, and CBS seemed particularly vulnerable to it. Uh, one thing I didn't know that you mentioned is that Lucille Ball was, in fact, a so-called card-carrying member of the Communist Party. She said it was just out of a—she a, did it as a favor to a relative and didn't have any loyalties to it. Um, Desi Arnaz uh, said that the only thing read about Lucy is her hair. Uh, but what made CBS particularly vulnerable to Red Scare uh, fears and charges?
0: Well, with a lot of the Red Scare monger, fear mongering, a lot of that is grassroots. And there were several groups who would create these booklets, which sort of gave people um, like a quick guide to who is affiliated with kind of communist or uh, organizations with communist ties. And so you could look through this book and you could find and they could. Really, they just went and looked for mentions of people in The Daily Worker, which is a communist newspaper, um, and they looked for people who belonged to things like civil rights organizations. And they said, well, these people are suspect. Um, And so people could look at that and say, okay, well, I know that these people are suspect. We can boycott their shows. Well, it so happens that CBS had more people on those lists than any of the other networks. And so that made them, combined with their... Cracker Jack news team led by Edward R. Murrow, which had been known for breaking some, some, some pretty politically controversial stories, um, it kind of earned them this reputation of being the communist broadcast system, which is the name that J. Edgar Hoover coined for it.
1: As I hear you say that, and as I read the story in the book, there, there seem to be some echoes today of social media campaigns against this or that broadcaster, this or that network, this or that cable host. Um, did you sense any of those echoes as, as you were looking into this?
0: Absolutely. Um, if you look at what happened to Edward R. Murrow um, when dealing with the, you know, with with McCarthyism and he de- actually dealing with Joe McCarthy himself in the 1950s and trying to take him head on and to, to address some of the falsehoods that he was just spouting without regard for what the consequences were um, and taking him on, he lost his sponsors. Um, he had to pay for that broadcast um, in which he kind of um, debated McCarthy or gave McCarthy his say. And then he had his say, and he couldn't get a sponsor for that. That was something that he had to pay for out of his own pocket. And within a year, he had actually lost his show. And this is one of the most venerated journalists in the history of CBS, in the history of any, uh, of any network, um, who had been on television and radio for about 20 years straight. And within a year, he was out of a job.
1: And Murrow's name is so often invoked not only as a paragon of, of journalistic uh, credibility, uh, but also a voice from a stable era of journalism. Uh, and yet, as you point out, his career was anything but stable.
0: Absolutely. I mean, if he was willing to say things that other journalists weren't, but that also put him in the political line of fire, for sure.
1: So you write that the southern programming craze began as a western craze in the late 50s uh, with a wave of westerns, perhaps most notably the Davy Crockett show on ABC. And you make a fascinating point that in this programming, uh, several of the characters or several of the storylines Um, had to be reimagined or reworked from uh, what could be construed or had some historical basis as Confederate sympathies. And so Southerners were turned into Westerners. Can you you explain how that happened?
0: Well, it's not necessarily that they were turned into Westerners. It's just that there's often a lot of overlap between what you're going to ultimately see on rural comedy and what you see on the Westerns. Um, and there, there is this, there seems to be this connection between the West and the South, though, in that both kind of, they're both kind of conceivably outsiders who are kind of not necessarily understood by those around them. Um, they, they prefer to operate by themselves. They're loners, and so a lot of that Confederate imagery lends itself really well to the West. And if you look at westerns, a lot of them do generally feature some you know, some veteran, grizzled veteran who has lost his family to the evil Yankees and he's gone West to make a new life for himself. And so there's something very romantic about that imagery. And so it seems that you often see the West as being populated by Southerners when in fact, you know, they weren't there any more than, you know, any any other region of the country. And a significant portion of the people who went West were, you know, people of other ethnicities, particularly African-Americans. But... Um, there is something about that Confederate imagery that really seems to stick. I I can't entirely explain it but they just seem to mesh really well together and I think that those thematic similarities have something to do with it.
1: So Westerns give heroes that Southerners can identify with and Northerners can also identify with as being the true Americans who are settling the frontier as problematic as we would say that is today. Um, They're a generic enough American story that that every American can conceivably identify with them.
0: In theory, yes.
1: And so when Westerns kind of sagged, that opened the door for what became this rural comedy craze. And so um, CBS is looking to capitalize or capture something of that, uh, of the flavor of Western programming, um, but in a different way. And it it starts off with Andy Griffith, who was a comedian uh, from North Carolina, and at the time, and when his show came about, he was known for performing with a really exaggerated Southern accent, um, pre- performing self-deprecating routines, um, such as a, a retelling or a summary of Romeo and Juliet uh, with a Southern accent. And the Southern accent was, was the punchline, was the point of, of his comedy. Um, what was his character like when the show debuted, and how did he modify it uh, as the show took shape?
0: I think it's a wonderful story because I think it really uh, it really attests to Andy Griffith's acuity in figuring out that he was not the star of that show. Um, he was very into to sort of manipulating his southern accent and making it thicker and making that part of the punchline. line. Um, and so, you know, he often, you know, as you said, when he would give this reading of Romeo and Juliet, but he would do it with sort of this rube twist um, that kind of made it funny because he's mixing high and low and that, you know, he found the humor in that. And so he tries to do a similar version of that. Um, he does a backdoor pilot with the Danny Thomas show in which Danny Thomas, uh, his character, is going through this town in North Carolina called Mayberry, which is where the Andy Griffith show ultimately will be staged. And the whole point is that it's the, the city meets the country. And you have Danny Thomas's character kind of sparring with Andy Griffith. And though Andy Griffith has the very thick syrupy accent that he definitely puts on uh it's very clear that he's kind of quietly and subtly besting this city slicker who's who's come through his town and so there was something really sly about the way that he's subverting that and like he's you know with the southern accent we think of that as sounding stupid, but in fact he's kind of the smart one in that situation. And so he tries to do that with uh, those first couple episodes of his show when it comes on in the fall of 1960, but right away he realizes that Don Knotts, who plays Barney Fife, he Is so funny and he's such a great physical comedian and they tried to subdue that the first couple of episodes but it was clear to Andy almost right off the bat that he was meant to be the straight man and that Don Knotts as um, Barney Fife was meant to be the the physical he was supposed to be the humor and so they adapted the show in order to adapt to that dynamic
1: and among the things that were adapted perhaps somewhat unconsciously, was Andy Griffith moderating or, or, or limiting his own Southern accent. I mean, that seems to be a direct acknowledgement that a Southern accent is uh, is associated in his mind with comedy.
0: Absolutely. And at the same time that you see Andy um, bringing his down, you see Don Knotts ramping his up. Because he didn't have, he wasn't, uh, he definitely had a Southern accent, but I would say that it definitely became a bit more high pitched. Um, and he definitely added some comedic elements to it to heighten the effect.
1: So let's talk about the town of Mayberry in this show, and um, because it will have strong similarities to the other shows and the other settings that you talk about. On the one hand, it's a show where everybody is friendly, everybody gets along, the problems are rather trivial in the big picture, um, and it seems sort of utopian. On the other hand, you point out there are virtually no minorities or any hint of the social or political climate in the 1960s in the United States. Um, And so... (laughs) On the one hand it seems so innocuous to say why can't we just go back to the way things were in mayberry Um, and at the same time there's some real blind spots with that
0: absolutely if you think about mayberry as being based on mount airy which is where andy griffith grew up in north carolina there are a lot of similarities he always swore up and down that it was not based on that but everyone else that was involved with the show said that it was Um, If you look at Mount Airy, it's a stone's throw from Greensboro, which in 1960, the year that the Andy Griffith Show premiered, there were some pretty famous sit-ins that were taking place there, and that entire region of North Carolina was in upheaval because of the Civil Rights Movement. So if we're talking about going back to Mount Airy slash Mayberry in 1960, then we're talking about a time when there's a lot of social strife taking place. But you're never going to get a whiff of that on the Andy Griffith Show. And so when people say, you know, the good old days – you know, my childhood looks like that. Well, there's some very convenient things missing from that picture of your childhood.
1: I'll ask you about some connections to our current political climate, but even the phrase, make America great again, uh, could be construed with, with something like Mayberry in mind. Do you, do you ever hear people make claims uh, saying, why, you know, why couldn't we all live in Mayberry, or why can't it be the way it was in Mayberry?
0: Well, well, I don't know that I've heard that specifically, but I do know that that's something that Andy Griffith and Ron Howard both fought against um, because they don't ne- they they did not necessarily uh, believe that at all. And in fact, I, there was a, a big uproar before Andy Griffith died. He and Ron Howard actually endorsed Barack Obama, I believe, in the 2012 election, might have been 2008, but one, at least one of them and did a campaign ad for them and said that they and it was kind of alluding to the fact that they felt Obama was actually that you know having them together. It clearly says that Obama is. The one who most clearly evokes the values of Mayberry and he got a lot of um, backlash for that because I think a lot of people felt that he stood for conservative values, that he stood for um, what they believed in and he made it very clear that he did not and he, and he paid a, a bit of a price for it.
1: Well, the audience at the time in the 1960s certainly responded to Mayberry um, and you write that the audience probably saw Mayberry as a, as a kind of escape from the turmoil uh, of the 60s, as you mentioned, the Greensboro sit-ins happening so close to the town that inspired Mayberry, Uh, what do you conclude about America and Americans at this time uh, identifying with this place, this setting, and these stories so strongly?
0: Well, Andy himself always said that he felt that Mayberry was not a flat, it was not really supposed to be contemporary, despite the fact that there are multiple contemporary references in the show. Um, it's meant to be really more reflective of his own childhood in the 1930s. And so he's kind, but, you know, it's it's a bit insincere because by putting those contemporary references in there, um, you know, he's making it clear that, you know, that, that we're based in, in the 1960s. And so it's kind of hard to tell. I think that everybody can see an idealized vision of what their childhood was or what they wished it was in this program. I can certainly see the the value in that. Um, But at the same time, it's very convenient for perhaps a Southern viewing population to be able to say, well, that was the idealistic Southern childhood while being able to conveniently forget about the parts that would have been more difficult, particularly the racial aspect.
1: A spinoff of the Andy Griffith show was Uh, gomer Pyle, usmc based on jim neighbor's character Um, and here the disconnect between setting and reality is so stark because you have gomer Pyle in the marines on a marine base during the vietnam war and there's not a hint not a whiff of of the fact that the war is going on on the one hand it's hard to imagine advising the writers of that show to say hey let's put in some vietnam storylines but it just goes to show just how uh, how this was an alternate universe
0: it really is. And, you know, now that I've had a little distance from the book, I've come to think about it a little bit more. And I kind of wonder if this wasn't a way to sort of reassure the people at home that, you know, things weren't really so bad in Vietnam, that this was a way of saying, you know, oh, you know, these are the hijinks that happen on a military base. And, you know, this thing that my son or my brother or what have you has signed up for, it's not so dangerous. Because um, if Gomer Pyle can navigate this world, and certainly my relatives that i you know, I'm worried about can certainly handle it as well. So that's how I've come to see it. But I I don't really say that in the book.
1: Interesting. Uh, Another smash hit was the Beverly Hillbillies Uh, for the uninitiated. uh, Can you explain the premise of the show and um, why, why it became such a big success?
0: Well, the Beverly Hillbillies was the second program that CBS produced um, in the rural com- comedy genre. Um, it came out in 1962, and the idea is that there's a family from the Missouri Ozarks, um, which the, some people would quibble but that's not really Southern, but Paul Henning, who created it, did consider it Southern, and he was from there. So I take his word as the final. But it's a family in the Ozarks, a family of so-called hillbillies, who strike it rich um, when they find gold, or I'm sorry, oil on their land, and they become millionaires. And uh, Jed Clampett, who is the patriarch of the family, moves his daughter, his nephew, and his, I believe it's his wife's grandmother, dead wife's grandmother, um, out to Beverly Hills so that he can make a better life for his children. And what you have there is a classic fish-out-of-water story in which this family of hillbillies, Um, is trying to make it and make something of themselves in this world that does not really accept them for who they are.
1: And here you get maybe the most extreme caricatures of who Southerners are. And again, Northern audiences respond in a seemingly paradoxical way. They seem to admire um, Southerner characters as authentic and compassionate people. On the other hand, they, they seem to look down their nose at them as uneducated and ignorant and out of place and not uh, being able to fit in in the different cultural worlds where, where they go, such as in this case, Beverly Hills. Um, and you talk about the mud sill effect, mudsill effect, M U D S I L L. What is the mudsill effect and how is it operating in Northerners' response to these shows?
0: Well, I, first of all, I can't take credit for the mudsill concept that comes from John Shelton Reed, who is a famed sociologist from the University of North Carolina, and he came up with this concept. I've just applied it to this um, this particular work. Um, what it is is that people can watch this, and they're going to be able to see people who they can obviously see are are below them, um, probably socially, culturally, um, even if not economically, in this case. Um, And they can look at that and that makes you feel better about your own situation. So whatever it is that they're dealing with or what they look like or what they act like, you can feel superior to them in some way. So there's an example where Jed Clampett, um, he is involved in this uh, fender bender and ends up going to court. And what ensues is it's completely improbable. I mean, it's clear that Jed has no idea what what the laws are. Um, He has no idea of any of the legal jargon. And it's clear that he's, I mean, he's being played as a complete ignoramus in this case. Um, You know, pretty much anybody is going to know these terms, like, you know, jury, for example, Um, any American is going to know that. But he seems completely oblivious to this. And so you look at that and you're like, man, this guy is not, maybe not the smartest, um, but it makes you feel better because it's clear that you're smarter than he is.
1: And that effect is probably timeless, but do you think it played a greater role in the 60s with the turmoil we mentioned that it was reassuring to audiences to see characters like that over whom they could feel superior?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting dichotomy that's, that people can, that, that such characters can kind of give you a sense of superiority, and yet at the same time, uh, watching them is like the equivalent of eating warm chicken soup when you're sick. Um, it, it's just there's something very comforting about them, that they're funny, they're innocuous, they're not going to harm you in any way, nobody's going to um, die of cancer, no one's going to have an abortion, nobody's going to go off to war. Um, The the closest that we get to that is Green Acres when the the Zipples pig, pet pig, um, gets drafted to go to Vietnam, but even he gets out of it. So, uh, you know, there are not going to be any very special episodes of rural comedies. Um, They're there to make you laugh. They're very innocuous. They're there to to reach the um, widest possible demographic. And so you can come away from it and you're certainly not going to be offended um, you might even feel comforted. And so it's, it's fascinating that they can make you feel something negative, like feeling superior to another person, but at the same time make you feel comforted. So they're comforting you at the same time that they're you're looking down on them.
1: And you write that Southerners probably responded well to these despite that inferiority complex that the that the caricatures seemed to promote because they saw what was ultimately on balance a positive portrayal of Southern life, which they hadn't seen before um, and which they saw as something to celebrate?
0: Oh, absolutely. If you look at the way that a lot of Southern, you know, footage of Southerners, white Southerners in the 1960s is, it's a lot of a lot of screaming, a lot of yelling, a lot of protesting, um, a lot of sheriffs beating people of color and sticking police dogs and water hoses on them. And so those are definitely not positive pictures. You definitely get a strong sense that the South is a very violent and scary place, particularly if you aren't someone who kind of follows that that status quo pro-segregation stance. Um, If you look at rural comedy, you're not going to see even an inkling of that. You see kindness, you see neighborly love, you see people looking out for each other, and it definitely has a softening effect on the way that people perceive Southerners. It's better to be perceived as stupid than to be perceived as being mean and scary and potentially dangerous.
1: We talked about the lack of racial tension and lack of racial diversity at all. I mean, there's almost no ethnic or racial diversity in these programs, again, in contrast to what CBS had done in the late 40s and throughout the 50s. Um, I've always wondered, you talk about the afterlife that many of these shows have had in syndication even to this day, and I've always wondered what it must be like for a person of color to flip on this show and see this being portrayed as a, as a positive um, um, capturing of American life, uh, because it is so incomplete racially.
0: Well, it's interesting that you say that. I've certainly done a, a what would could only be termed an unscientific study but uh, you know among my friends of color I've I've asked all of my friends about this when I was writing it and everybody responded the same regardless of their race um you know they said that they had grown up watching this with their grandparents and that this was a part of their childhood and had been a part of their parents' childhood And they, you know, whether I don't know that they necessarily read anything into that um, racially. Um, I think that they're just seeing something that gives them a lot of nostalgia, which is ultimately the point of the thing is to invoke nostalgia. Um, And again, my my survey is very unscientific, but I did find that the response was the same across the board.
1: Interesting. Interesting. So these shows became smash hits. They were all or almost all on CBS. They were ratings uh, hits and they dominated the primetime lineups uh, of CBS and other networks that were trying to follow suit. Um, CBS gained a lot by having this kind of show in the wake of, as you said, the Red Scare and being called the communist broadcasting system. But CBS also had something to lose. It had a reputation as being um, a sterling. It was called the Tiffany Network. Um, And so not all critics and not all higher ups at CBS were pleased with the direction the network was taking. What was their resistance?
0: Well, that's absolutely true, because CBS, in part because of people like Edward R. Murrow, they had been very particular about the kinds of shows they had put on, and they had been known for having a very um, intellectual and highbrow sort of bent that ABC and NBC did not necessarily look to cultivate. And so once you start to see the rural comedies, Um, You know, I think there's a lot to love about those programs, but I don't think that anyone's going to call them a beacon of intellectual pursuits. And so there was a sense that the network was being dumbed down. And so and I think that this is also the era when you're starting to see demographics coming into play a bit more and people are paying attention to not only how many are watching, but who is watching. And they felt like they're probably by looking at rural comedy, they might be missing out on some of their more affluent Viewers, um, the ones who are actually going to be able to buy the things that are being shown in the commercials that are shown um, in between segments of The Andy Griffith Show and The Beverly Hillbillies.
1: So one step CBS took to counteract this is to air the Smothers Brothers. And, you know, it's funny. Growing up, I always saw the Smothers Brothers making appearances on PBS, and I thought, here are these two seemingly bland guys, one playing a string bass, one doing yo-yo tricks. And they seemed to be the most unthreatening performers I could imagine. And then I later find out they have this history uh, as being so subversive they were kicked off network television. Um, I guess tell us about their act and, and what made it so controversial that CBS ultimately had to cut ties with them.
0: Well, I, it was fascinating. I read this book by Dave and B. and Cooley, um, uh, and it's called Dangerously Funny, and it was a book about the Smothers Brothers, and I definitely referenced it heavily in my in a chapter in my own book. But with the Smothers Brothers, they have this great dichotomy where they're coming across so clean cut. They've got short hair and an arrow when everyone is starting to you know, grow their hair down to their shoulders, and they don't have facial hair in a time when that's becoming popular. They wear suits. Um, they're very buttoned up, clean shaven, I mean, they, they look the part of a total square. And so that makes them m- pleasing to an older eye. But then for the younger audience, that's who they're really playing to. Um, it's, uh, You know, David B. Cooley actually said in his book that he felt that, and, and he's not the only one, but that the Smothers Brothers, had they been allowed to continue on, they would have been what Lorne Michaels is in American culture. That he, they basically created a prototype for Saturday Night Live. Um, They did skits which were subversive. Um, You know, some of them were a little bit out there and like really conceptual, but then they also did sort of an opening monologue and they had musical acts that were the most popular musicians of the day. Um, They often tried to slide political messages into the programming and they did so, um, and it, it earned them ratings, but it also earned the ire of the CBS brass who are wanting the ratings but they also don't want the political backlash that comes with some of the things that they air.
1: And I believe the show that replaced them on some something of an emergency basis uh, was Hee Haw, is that right?
0: That's correct. They were, um, they were actually fired. They had been picked up for a third season in 1969, only to be fired about six weeks later over um, yet another controversial skit. And um, this is partly because... Um, William Paley, who was the chairman of CBS, was angling for an ambassadorship to Great Britain at the time and thought that this was going to get him on Nixon's good side. And so he fired the Smothers Brothers as a bit of a political maneuver. And so having to come up with something quick, this is at a time when CBS is starting to definitely move away from rural comedy, but they're in a hurry. uh, Rural comedy is still, despite not being fashionable, it's still earning ratings. And so within eight weeks of firing this mother's brothers, you have Hee Haw debuting um, to Pretty, pretty strong numbers, and um, which is what they were hoping for. You know, it may be unfashionable. It may not be cool, but it's very reliable in terms of getting eyeballs on the screen.
1: See, I read your narrative about Hee Haw as the show becoming sort of an accidental juggernaut, like the, the Steve, CBS brass was sort of disappointed at how well it was doing because then they had to keep it. And many of them saw it as the absolute low point in terms of programming quality or lack thereof. Um, so oh, I- C- CBS had mixed feelings about it?
0: Absolutely. I mean, the person who is in charge of programming at this point hated rural comedy with a passion. If anything, he kind of felt that by putting Hee Haw on the air and using that to cover the the Smothers Brothers slot, it might um, prove his point that rural comedy was on the way out. But in fact, it kind of did the opposite. And so he was really disappointed with those. Numbers And, I mean, again, I don't think anyone's going to look at hee-haw and say that it's the the height of intellectual stimulation. But at the same time, it's the country version of what the Smothers Brothers were doing. It's minus all the political content. So it's music, it's skits, um, you know, it's cracking jokes. And so it's a very similar concept if you think about it. It's just done in a different way. Um, And so they felt that they had had started with this brilliant concept of the Smothers Brothers and then they end up with this corn show featuring a guy who has, I think, like a fifth grade education, um, you know, making these disgusting jokes and, you know, kind of, you know, making a lot of fat jokes and things like that. So they really had fallen quite a bit in terms of the prestige.
1: And don't you write that it was also sort of uh, an emergency knockoff version of Laugh-In, which was getting uh, a lot of attention on NBC? And it was sort of, uh, would you say Laugh-In without the wit?
0: Yeah, and that's what, that's what a lot of the critics called it. I mean, it's, you know, they're funny, but it's, again, it's that funny catering to the lowest common denominator. It's not meant to catch the people with college educations, the people with money. Um, it's meant to, to catch anybody who's going to be flipping through channels and they'll say, oh, you know, I I'll laugh real quick and that will keep my attention for a few minutes, um, which may not necessarily be the type of viewer that CBS was looking to attract at that point.
1: So Hee Haw was the last hurrah of this era of rural comedy Um, and you have a chapter called Massacre the so-called rural massacre in which many of these shows uh, were canceled Uh, even though they were still rating successes at that point why did CBS choose then and so suddenly to change course when these shows including Hee Haw were still successful.
0: Well, the director of programming, Fred Silverman, he had been in place for some time, and I think this is what he had wanted all along. Um, He had actually written previously and had said very clearly that he felt that um, he had called them, um, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to curse, but these are his words, not mine, Um, he called them shit-kicking shows, um, which is definitely not supposed to be a compliment. And so he, he was looking for a way to get rid of them, and so what he did was he had found these, what he was trying to do is appeal to the baby boomers because they were coming of age, um, young adults now out of college, starting to earn their own money, and they had outgrown rural comedy. And so he wanted to just start appealing to them. And so he, he found shows that he felt would appeal to that demographic, like the Mary Tyler Moore show and All in the Family. And he, once he got those in, in place, he didn't need rural comedy anymore. Um, he figured it was time to start switching out those easy ratings from the rural comedies to ratings that were based on sophisticated viewers who were making this choice and also had the money to back it up so that the advertisers would want to buy time on their programs
1: you reflect a lot on all in the family and of course it was appealing to a different demographic and whereas rural comedy was completely detached from social reality all in the family was addressing social reality very directly and yet there's this question of whether the openly racist portrayal of Archie Bunker um, was uh, critical or in some ways sympathetic or at least open to being celebrated. Uh, And and you could say that Archie Bunker was the prototype of of Rush Limbaugh or Donald Trump. Um, Where do you fall? Yeah, where do you fall on that question of um, was this portrayal um, ultimately critical and damaging or did it reinforce the very things it was attempting to satirize?
0: Well, I do think that Norman Lear uh, was very intent- he did intend for Archie Bunker to be kind of a villain. Um, the the only problem with that is that by making him the the funny centerpiece of the show, it makes it very difficult for him to change. And so, you know, Lear is basing this on men of his father's generation um, who were in the Northeast. So, kind of taking that racist attitude out of the South and putting that firmly in the North. Um, you know, people who had this sort of very casual racism. Um, and kind of how that reflected back on their young, you know, on their kids and that younger generation who was a bit more open-minded. And I, I, that was his intention. But at the same time, when you actually ask people who, who are watching the show, um, younger people did think Archie was a bit of a villain, but older people didn't. Older people thought that Archie was the one who was talking sense. And so that's a really interesting dichotomy: is that depending on which generation you're in. Um, it depends on how you view Archie. He's both an anti-hero and just a flat-out hero. Um, and so I don't know that they intended that to happen, but I can say that once they became aware that that was happening, they did not do anything to change it um, hmm. because the ratings were, were were so good. And so what you see is that Archie never changes. I mean, he I would say, you know, people will say, oh, well, you know, he, he softened a little but at the same time, those underlying prejudices are still there, and they're exploited for laughs in almost every single episode. So I can't—I don't think you could say that he made any meaningful change. And so it was almost necessary for his that nasty side of his personality had to remain a constant, and there was no effort to really change that.
1: The bigotry, which we might later call political incorrectness—a uh, bit euphemistically—is supposed to be a bug, and it turns out in some cases becoming a feature, right?
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, if, if it gets ratings, that's all that they care about. I mean, it's a money-making enterprise, after all. They're not concerned. They can give lip service to social justice, but when it comes down to it, it's how much the advertiser is going to pay for a 30-second spot.
1: And that accidental appeal of political incorrectness is one of the things that got me thinking about the present day, post-2016. I mean, you look at the 2016 presidential campaign, and everybody thought, well, you can't possibly have a presidential campaign that features political incorrectness and bigotry so openly and get a presidential nomination or win an election. Um, and yet, again, among the supporters of the current president, that was a feature and not a bug. I, do you see that as one of the, the commonalities to this era that you researched?
0: I mean, I, I, I see it as that being the beginning of an era in which those attitudes were beginning to be suppressed. And this really just feels like full circle, where those, you know, it's no longer being oppressed, and it's it's no longer considered taboo to say those things, any longer. And um, so I think we basically just went in a 50 year cycle, and we're coming back around again.
1: I did. Want, I want to ask you more about the social climate, but first, let me just ask about the media landscape. Uh, one of the things coloring the story that you tell is the fact that there are, at least when the Andy Griffith Show debuts, three networks. Um, eventually, uh, PBS will come along at the end of the decade. And so the piece of the pie, so to speak, well, there aren't many pieces of the pie to, to dole out when it comes to getting shows noticed. And today we, the landscape is so fragmented. You can have YouTube-only shows, Netflix-only shows. Um, how, how different of an era are we in, and how much would, it, would that have affected things like the kinds of comedies that got made into sitcoms uh, 50 years ago?
0: Well, I think that the interesting thing about something like rural comedy or anything that was made in the 60s and 70s is that as much as you want to put some kind of political spin on it, they were actively trying to avoid being political specifically because they're trying to get the biggest piece of the pie possible. It could only be divided three ways um, if you got 34 percent then you were winning. And CBS and their heyday had closer to 39 or 40 percent of that pie. So that's significant numbers, and you can't get that from being hyper-political about anything. And the difference with uh, that in today's climate is that you can feasibly go through life without ever having to see an opinion that is different from yours. You can tailor your television viewing, your reading, um, even listening to the radio. All of that can be tailored to your specific worldview. And CBS, and and none of the networks for that matter, they didn't have the luxury of that. They had to figure out, well, what is going to appeal to everyone um and so they had to make it as broad as possible,
1: and maybe similarly um the networks had to acknowledge in the sixties that this segment of American life existed uh southern life um however much they caricatured it um and so you you, you have to represent a different part of america than than perhaps they had uh, as you mentioned when the networks were physically located and focused mostly on urban centers, and there's another theme that that got me thinking about today, where after two thousand sixteen uh, after the election, and people said, "What happened? How did everybody miss how did everybody underestimate uh, the Trump campaign?" And many people said, "Well, see, it just shows how out of touch the coastal uh, elite media is with uh, the South and other rural parts of the country. Uh, do you see a commonality there?
0: Well, I, I do. Um, I I think about what the big themes of southern rural comedy are, and a lot of times it's being a fish out of water and not trusting outsiders. Um, so much of the comedy from something like The Andy Griffith Show comes from outsiders coming in and looking to make trouble. And so I think if you are, you know, technically Virginia, I'm in Virginia. Virginia is on the coast Um, So technically, I would be considered a coastal elite, but at the same time, it's very much the South. And so there's kind of that feeling of belonging and yet at the same time feeling attacked um, and feeling like you, you know, people don't understand you or people make assumptions about you based on where you are from. And I think that there is something to be said. And I and I think that that's the key to understanding the Trump voter is to understand that they're sick of being made fun of. Um, I think that there's, it's kind of like a backlash of the mudsill effect uh, and people who have traditionally been the brunt of that ridicule. They're now saying, I don't, you know, I, you know, I, I don't, you know, who's laughing now, basically.
1: Yeah. Do you feel like you have a dual identity as a Southerner and an academic researching this? I mean, it would only be in the perception, of course. But, um, and what's it like when you come across um, comments that some of these CBS executives had made about Southerners? Uh, do you squirm as a Southerner when you read some of those?
0: Well, I yeah. I mean, I find it annoying. It's the whole reason that I got into this. I you know I had an experience once when I went to a wedding and someone said to me, "Well." You know you're so well spoken for a Southerner, ah. and I said, if you put literally any other group in that sentence, then that would have you would have not you would not have allowed that to come out of your mouth, but because I'm from the South, you think it's okay because I should be stupid and have two teeth. And I find that very annoying because most of the Southerners that I know don't fit into that category at all. And so you know everybody doesn't like to be placed into a box, and so I can connect with that. Um, and, I, and I can certainly get that feeling of being looked down upon um, by people who don't know anything about you. And so I, I, I don't necessarily feel that in my social circle because most of the people that I am around are like me. But at the same time, when you see how the outside reacts, like um like Ralph Northam, who was our governor, um, getting into this blackface scandal and people say, well, what do you expect? It's Virginia. I'm like, well, Virginia has voted blue in the last three presidential elections and we have all democratic representation. So why are you acting as though we're tr- the middle of Trump country? Um, and so there's clearly these broad stereotypes that people are willing to throw at you at a moment's notice. And it's very difficult to not take exception with that.
1: For me, and maybe we're venturing too much into current politics and too far away uh, from your research, so I'll make this the last question about the present day connections. Um, For me, the the question since 2016 is, yes, the Trump voter, the rural American has been uh, neglected, misunderstood, caricatured, marginalized, and at the same time, um, any validation of the attempts of this political movement and this current president to uh, further oppress um, minorities and others who are marginalized has to be resisted. Yes, you have to pay more attention to the Trump voter and validate them as a presence in American life. And at the same time, the political effect of Trumpism has to be lamented and resisted.
0: Well, you know, the way that I look at this is that there are ways to get around that. And I think that Barack Obama did that very effectively. He was able to find a coalition of voters who are in these very same states that voted for Donald Trump. And so it's not as though they are unwilling to listen. Um, I think it's just the issue of being talked down to that they find really uncomfortable. I don't know that, you know, I have a lot of family members who are Trump voters. And so I've had many conversations about this. And my understanding of it is that... Um, you know, they're not not actively trying to be racist. Unfortunately, it's just that they don't mind that that's a byproduct, Um, which says plenty all by itself. But at the same time, I do think that they are willing to listen to a different way of thinking as long as it's phrased in a way that's palatable to them.
1: Okay. I wanted to ask you about Uh, an unrelated project, Uh, I think it's unrelated, an interactive textbook that you developed as a history professor. And uh, technologically, it seems to be somewhat unusual. Can you tell us why you developed it and what this digital textbook is like?
0: Sure. Um, I developed a textbook for the uh, educational platform Top Hat. And I did this in collaboration with them, um, because I feel that History is often given short shrift in terms of what it's capable of from a technological sense. I think that a lot of people think history and they think dusty archives and books full of dates and names and that there's nothing interesting about it. But, you know, if you think about it, I mean, look at these television shows. Look at something like Chernobyl on HBO. And there's tons of hits on that right now because people are going down that historical rabbit hole and they want to find out about it or um, when the Queen came on. Um, You know, there are all these programs that are coming out that are based in history, and people want to know about it. They just want to know about it on their terms. And so I think the way to look at the textbook is that it should be basically the ability to do a deep dive on this subject. So we provide video. We provide audio. We provide opportunities for discussion. So it's basically a discussion board like you would find online. Um, and we provide that opportunity for them to really grapple with that material and immerse themselves in the the, the 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 sounds from the time period. We tell them about, you know, this is what life would have been like in the 1940s when World War II was getting ready to start. So they're not only going to be learning about well, this is when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, they're also going to know, well, this is how much the typical worker made, and this is how much a car cost, and this is how much people paid for a carton of eggs. Um, So you're really getting a sense of what life was like, which I think is really key to people caring about history. You have to identify with it in some way. You have to be able to see yourself there. You have to be able to empathize with the characters there. Otherwise, it becomes this very black-and-white right and wrong there's only one clear decision it was always going to be this way and that's not how it works at all it's always up in the air history is always up for grabs
1: so you've been a writer an adjunct professor as you describe a multimedia producer Um, and now we happen to be catching you at a point of a job change Uh, tell us about your new position
0: Well, I'm going to be an instructor at Western Governors University, which um, is an entirely online university, and it specializes in adult learners. Um, I'll be teaching world history and U.S. history there, um, and really, you know, the, the focus of that is really developing relationships and developing competencies for our students. And so I look forward to sort of melding these two things that I really love, which is the online aspect of teaching um, along with developing those relationships with students, which are so important to their success.
1: Well, it sounds exciting. Sarah Eskridge, congratulations on the book. Congratulations on the new position. We wish you Thank continued you. success. Uh, thanks for your time today.
0: Thanks for having me, Nathan.
1: Sarah Eskridge is the author of Rube Tube, CBS and rural comedy in the 60s, brand new from University of Missouri Press. As this book was published, Sarah Eskridge was a professor of history at Randolph-Macon College in Ashland, Virginia. She has since been appointed as a professor at Western Governors University. She lives in Quinton, Virginia. I'm Nathan Birma. You've been listening to New Books and Communication Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.